that for me is a is a real essence of military leadership it's that it's that point of being ready to do something and ready to step up when you might be feeling wretched inside but you know that there are a hundred or a thousand or thirty two thousand eyes looking at you and and you're the person that they want to hear from and and at those moments you know that that, that is where the leadership really does matter hi there i'm james ashton this episode is a very special one I've welcomed dozens of leaders onto this podcast in the last two years, but this is my first foray into military leadership. I should say first, leading is supported by Lockton, the world's largest privately owned independent insurance broker. Lockton's independence means its 8,000 associates worldwide are free to focus solely on their clients' risk and insurance needs. To hear more from Lockton experts, please visit lockteninternational.com gb insight. So to this episode, Air Chief Marshal Sir Mike Wigston is Chief of the Air Staff. He's leader of the Royal Air Force, defender of the UK skies. We talk about managing the fast-changing defence threat to the UK, including our vulnerabilities in space, and leading through the toughest times when lives are lost. In 35 years of service, Mike has flown at seven miles a minute in some of the most dangerous parts of the world. Now he's trying to speed up the adoption of new technologies, including unmanned aircraft, and he's determined to improve culture and the diversity of his workforce. It's a great episode and we begin talking about how he's led through the pandemic. I've been chief now for about 18 months and so a significant part of that time has been spent dealing with the pandemic but as the Ministry of Defence as a as one of the service chiefs in defence we've we've also you know been at pains to point out that you know, whilst we've got a nation that's got a, a real challenge on its hands to deal with the pandemic, at the same time, there are things going on in the world, threats manifesting, a, a, an uncertain, you know, complex and dynamic strategic context where we, you know, we have to continue to, to do what we do at our core, which is the security and defense of the United Kingdom. So, so for us, the, you know, the business continued, in my case, air and space power to to protect the united kingdom you know we had to continue with that as well as supporting the national effort against covid-19 and and making sure that our force stayed resilient as well so you know it added another tier of of demand on the air force and how did you do that were there any particular things you had to do to make sure that raf could support civilians yes so in in the first instance i think just like any organisation there was that that was that uncertain phase in in the in the february march and into april time frame where there was uncertainty about what we were dealing with this new hazard this new threat and there was uncertainty about what the what the future might bring and i think as we sort of worked our way through that and kept our eye on the operational mission uh, overseas. You know, I've, I've currently got over 3,000 people deployed around the world, for example. Well, keeping keeping those sustained, uh, keeping the, uh, the the supply of equipment and serviceable aircraft, you know, keeping those people healthy and ready for operations became an an important part of our sustained effort during most of 2020. But at the same time, alongside the Army and the Navy, we had hundreds of people supporting the national effort directly. So I've got about uh, 600 medical professionals who their day-to-day jobs are embedded in the NHS. In a, in a period of conflict, we would call them back and put them into military hospitals. But at, but in in peacetime, their their role is embedded in in hospitals around the UK. So they've been 
right alongside their NHS colleagues on the on the very front line of the battle against COVID-19. But as I'm sure you've seen in some of the media reporting, we've had military uh, supply chain experts, military planners. We've used Royal Air Force aircraft to bring British nationals back. We've used Royal Air Force aircraft and helicopters to to move COVID patients around the UK. So, so we've been involved in our way in supporting the national effort. That's been on, as I say, on top of the uh, the day to day task of protecting the skies of the UK and you know tackling threats to our security and prosperity around the world. I should put some numbers around the the, the business, the RAF, if you like. I have a figure for thirty four thousand personnel under you. I. Th- I've also got 5,000 civil servants, and then I'd be curious to know that the number of, of aircraft as well that you oversee. So, so without without being picky, I'm going to uh, I'm going to say we've got um, 32,000 in re- regular service, and then another 2,000 who are reservists, and you know that's a really valuable component of the force, particularly going into the future, where some of those rare skills around coding, uh, cyber, and and space technologies actually will be hard to attract into the Royal Air Force on a full-time basis. But but those skill sets absolutely exist within the wider, uh, you know, the private sector. And so so that reserve service for me becomes really important around those niche future skills. Um, and then I've, then I've got 4,000 civil servants who provide an invaluable role across all aspects of our business, right out to the uh, front line as well. So, so there's a real mix. And then the other component of our workforce, if you like, that I absolutely depend on is our contracted base as well and our permanent contractors. And we use contractors for everything from training our aircrew and uh, our engineering recruits all the way through to generating serviceable aeroplanes. So doing our deep engineering, making sure that we've got a reliable supply of aircraft that are ready to fly. So, you know, we've got a real mix of, of workforce that uh, that comes together and, you know, and and all of that contributes. And going back to the in context of COVID, of course, each of those different cohorts has got different demands and different pressures on them, both professionally in the workplace, but also in their home lives. And having to sort of lead people through that, through that uncertainty, through, you know, in some, some pretty grim circumstances, added another, you know, another layer of the, of the leadership challenge over the past year. You know, on the aircraft side, we are one of um, NATO's leading air forces in terms of the range of capabilities, the range of aircraft types that we operate. So everything from combat aircraft. So, for example, our, our Typhoon Force, which is the backbone of the the Royal Air Force's air defence. So when Russian long-range bombers come and sniff around our coastline, it's Typhoon fighters that go and intercept them. And we've got Typhoons currently deployed in the eastern Mediterranean, flying out of Cyprus to uh, to combat the, the violent extremism, which is threatening uh, Iraq and and in Syria. I see. And I'll come on to the, to the future of that, because I know you're feeding into the, the review at the moment, and you've talked about the, the need for technological advancement, the shift, if you like, from manned to unmanned. And I'm very interested in in the challenge that poses to you from a leadership point of view. But um, I was looking at your CV and how you're described on the RAF website. You're accountable to the Secretary of State, Mike, for fighting effectiveness, efficiency and morale. I mean, the three pretty big buckets. I'm interested in how you break that down. Yes, and and actually, there's there's quite a sort of neat way in my mind to break it down. I think that first one, that fighting effectiveness, I offer 
you know, military strategic advice to our government, to our political leadership, to my Secretary of State, alongside the fellow chiefs, so that our government can choose to act to tackle a threat or to, to support an ally and you know, project the UK on a world stage. And the, the world, a global system of rules and norms of behaviour is very important to us as a globally connected nation. So that military strategic advice is a really important part of my role and that and that extends to operating a range of different air and space platforms and it uh, extends to thinking about uh, what contingency operations we might need to be ready for and it also extends to planning and building the future force which is the process that we're going through at the moment as we work out what the program of the art for the armed forces is going to be for the next 10 years following the the announcement by the prime minister last november of a 16 and a half billion pound uplift over four years you know, that gives us some choice around you know, w- what platforms and where we where we modernize it must have felt like christmas in the in the circumstances it was a hugely significant announcement what it spoke to was the you know our government our political leadership's recognition of the centrality of the armed forces to the security and the prosperity of the united kingdom and this is something that's non-discretionary for the government and of course it's hugely welcome and in the circumstances i recognize that the responsibility that that you know that that, that then places on us as the as the current leadership to to get it right and to make sure that we are making every pound that is invested in our armed forces, you know, worth it for, for our government, you know, and for our nation's security. The second part of my job, if you like, is what I sort of described as the chief executive of the Air Force. And that and that is running that 32,000 regulars, another 4,000 civil servants in uniform. It's, it's being responsible for spending over £7 billion of taxpayers' money every year. We're a base-fed organisation, so I have to attract and recruit and train some really talented individuals and keep them in the service you know i've got a lot of infrastructure around the country around the world and it's aging in places and it reminds me that it's aging on a on a daily basis we do some quite difficult dangerous risky things and i have to do it safely and you know and and you know particularly in training and you know and we deliver some of the most complex and demanding equipment programs and infrastructure programs in government and you know and we've got a good track record of doing that but we need to keep it but the third bit the the morale you know that's to me is the third tenet of my job as as chief which is as the the temporary custodian of a, of a national institution a nas- national institution that that is the royal air force that is uh, you know and, and in that i include our hundreds of thousands of veterans and widows and widowers and their families i include the much asked of families of uh, serving personnel that reflects our sort of roots in society, the sort of length and breadth of the country, our, our military char- charities like the RF Benevolent Fund and RAFA. And it, and it also talks about what we do with youth and our fantastic cadet organization with some 41,000 young people doing, you know, doing amazing things. But for me, all of that comes under that temporary head of the tribe. And I'm responsible for being the embodiment of that, that, you know, those, that culture and values and ethos that is the national institution that is the Royal Air Force. So, so whilst my job description is, uh, you know, c- captures it in, in three sort of short words in a pithy sentence, actually, to me, that, that reflects the three main planks of, of the job I do. 
Well, thank you. No, I, I, I mean, look, I think it is pithy. I think it's summed up pretty well, but I, I could see there was going to be a long answer behind that. And, uh, and it's very good for you to, to, to flesh it all out, Mike. And actually to, it's very interesting to think of the, um, the head of the, the Royal Air Force as, uh, well, one of those buckets is really like just another CEO who has the, you know, financial constraints and challenges and safety issues to think of. I'd like to go back to the threat because it's, um, you gave, I think this was your speech on uh, the anniversary of Battle and Britain Day last year. You talked about the threat picture changing fast. I suppose the challenge is it's a very different threat. It's maybe a less visible threat. Although I note from reading in that there's a number of instances in recent years where unauthorized Russian aircraft have, have tested the edges of UK airspace where submarines are perhaps straying where, where they shouldn't be. But I guess a big part of what you have to think about is is what no one else can see. It's cyber and so on. It is. It is. And for me, increasingly, it's space as well. Another part of defense, the strategic command, is is responsible for cyber. But of course, as as in any organization, everybody has a part to play in that. But for me, space is an area where I think the av- the average person out there in you know in the UK public has no or has very little concept of of just how reliant we are on space day to day. Whether that's um, you know for getting money out of an ATM, for getting petrol out of a a petrol pump, for getting food on the shelves in supermarkets for getting just-in-time deliveries in any supply chain. Well, that's all reliant on space. And we've become equally reliant on it in the way we operate on operations. And, and our enormous success on operations in uh, you know over the last three decades has been reliant on precision weapons, on precision navigation, and it's been reliant increasingly on space. And some of our adversaries have, have, have watched us and learned from that that reliance. And so they see the Western dependency on it uh, and are working out how they can threaten it and interfere with some of the things that are really important to us around communications, around our understanding of what's going on from space. So there's a real incentive on us working with like-minded allies, principally the US, but countries around the world to come together and make sure that space is a uh, is is an operating area, an operating domain, which is available for all, which everyone can use and everyone can benefit from. And some of the more nefarious activity that we've been seeing increasingly in recent years, we're starting to to actually highlight that in in an in an open way. It's been done quite secretly in the past, but as you will have picked up, where, for example, last year Russia prototyped a, a satellite which had all of the characteristics of a weapon and we said so in public and we hadn't done that previously so so i think space is something that we've got to increasingly turn our minds to as as an area where we are uh, you know just as vulnerable as a nation and as a globally connected nation as we are through cyber and i think people's understanding of the risks around cyber have increased 10 and 100 fold in in recent years but like any CEO, I mean, you, you were really by folding space into your remit, Mike, you massively multiplied up the opportunity slash challenge for you. And I suppose like any CEO, you have to, you know, make choices based on resources and so on. You know, can you you fight on every um, on every flank or I don't know how you, you choose that, how you arrange your resources? Yes. And, and, that, and that's absolutely the challenge of the moment. So we're, we're speaking in early February and there's another few weeks yet of working through to the point where our, our political leadership will make the choices around the future shape of the armed forces. And, but as the, as the Prime Minister 
has already announced in November that the UK's position in space is something that this government is absolutely determined to secure and invest in. So whether it's the Prime Minister's mention of uh, space launch ambitions from, from the British Isles, or whether it's the you know really important step from from my perspective and you know and and speaking very parochially in that in that regard the very important step of establishing a UK space command for the first time you know that's important to me because of everything that I've said in terms of space as an operating environment but it's also important to me because the Royal Air Force has been given responsibility on behalf of the Ministry of Defence on behalf of the nation to establish that that UK space command and we'll be doing it within that the the, uh, the headquarters here at RF High Wickham. And and that review that you talk about is is the integrated review, which is it seems to me like a once in a generation opportunity to shape UK's role in national security, foreign policy, you know, what the Defence Force should look like. I know looking twenty years out, you've got thirty-five years of service, so you've seen what it's used to look like, and I see a lot of language about we mustn't be geared up to fight the last war. So what what should the RAF look like, say yeah, twenty years from now? Yeah, and and, I, and that's been the really live discussion, negotiations as well over the last year as we tease exactly that out. This integrated review, and as I say, which is going on at the moment, you know, will be that opportunity for us to really take a step into the armed forces, not just the RAF, but the Army, the Navy of, of the future, and, and making sure that we are that modernising force that, that is going to be fit for the the threats and the challenges that we think we will face in the future. This, The strategic context of, of, of chronic instability, that uncertainty, and the fast-evolving technological threats that we're facing re- mean that we have got to do something differently and um yeah and and for me that's uh you know that is all about the opportunities of the digital revolution and we see information technology and the, and and the consumer and commercial digital revolution well that's just as applicable to us in the armed forces and that will be a really important part of what we do going forward well th- and through that that te- technological leap well machines are capable of doing things that hu- until now humans have had to do and that's you know, most evident to my mind in flying aircraft like the one behind me. We're reaching the point now where the human in that machine isn't isn't really flying the machine. The human in that machine is operating that complex system of sensors and, and weapons and doing what humans really do best, which is to take in a wide range of, of inputs and actually be able to make sense of it. So that's still that, that's still that human that needs to be in the loop. But that that human in that machine behind me, you know, he or she could have four, five or six autonomous pilotless aircraft flying alongside him or her, where the mothership, if you like, is able to control those and they're able to fully play their part in a very complex air to air combat or any operational scenario. So even five years ago that aircraft with a pilot in it would have had to have another eight aircraft with pilots in them well we are within a decade of having a mothership like that and and any number of 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 uncrewed unpiloted aircraft flying in formation that's what the technology is offering now and 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 the integrated review is is our opportunity to make that leap make that generational leap even in 20 years i still think for the most complex scenarios we will need a human who has that ability to 
to compute what's going on right up there. But I think we're going to increasingly see automation uh, creeping in across uh, across all aspects of what we do as an Air Force. I was going to say, do, does the human still have a role in the sky? Because I know, you know, head of the review, one one investment that you're making is these loyal wingman products, the unmanned fighter craft, which I think been been developed in in Belfast to, yes. to fly alongside the Typhoons or the F thirty fives. You still see you need the human in the sky. I mean, does it? You know, as as someone who has has grown up in a very uh, well, we'll come on to culture and people uh, a little later on, but it's a, it's very much about the person. Does it at all fill you with with unease that that is the way forward? That you are you're having to trust the technology so much more than you ever did? No unease at all, and I think it just offers so much opportunity and so much scope for for doing what we do even better. The reason I say that I still think there will be an element of uh, requirement for a human because right now, as far as the, you know, the UK is concerned we will need a human to be the ultimate decision maker when you're committing lethal force. So whether you're dropping a bomb or firing a missile, there needs to be a human in the loop for that. And some of what I've said about the threat to space, well, that's about the threat to long distance communications. And and if you've got an aircraft that's working autonomously a thousand miles away, well, you're going to rely on a number of different ways of communicating with it. And if you can't rely on that communications, uh, you, you need a human in the loop right up there at the coalface for the foreseeable future. And I think for those most those most testing scenarios, we still see humans in the loop you know, and very, uh, you know, very much in the cockpit. But where, as I say, whereas previously it would have been 10 or 20 piloted aircraft, it may only be one or two piloted aircraft with a number of robot flown uh, aircraft uh, alongside them. And you've talked about the importance of making sure that the RAF has really fast adoption of this technology. I mean, I, I wrote down it. We talk about an arms race, but this really is an arms race if it's about if it's about UK defence versus other uh, forces. So, how do you make sure? Is that about making sure the contractors are working fast enough? Is it about making sure you've got the right people who can who can adopt all this stuff? How do you position yourself so that you you can really operate pretty much like a tech company, really? Yes. Yeah, it's exactly and and that's that's the real challenge that is absolutely the challenge that I face and yeah and it's one of the ones that we're we're working really hard at because I think no no longer can we can we bring things into service we we haven't got the time and you know and the the international context is such that we just don't have to t- the time to bring things into service in the in if if you like in the in the ways of the industrial age where it took 20 or 30 years to develop you know, aircraft like the Typhoon or or any of our current platforms. So we've got to be much more agile and we've got to adopt many of the processes that you see in in modern high tech companies in the private sector. And there's and there's a you know and that's a real challenge and I know that it's a challenge that any sort of let's call them legacy industries or legacy parts of the private sector face as well. The way we've approached it is we've set up a thing called the Rapid Capabilities Office because what we've what we've found was that actually the culture of the organisation, however willing you were as a leadership team, the, the the muscle memory in the organisation was not going to get up to that and get to that level of agility as quickly as we needed it to. So what we actually did was we carved off a a team of experts, multidisciplinary experts, with the you know, specific function of bringing capability, so bringing equipment and ideas off the whiteboard 
to pilot them and to introduce them into service as quickly as we possibly can. It's been remarkably successful and uh, you know, for everything from supply chain enhancements all the way through to pieces of equipment that we put in aeroplanes and, and drop off aeroplanes. So the Rapid Capabilities Office is something that we know we've got the, the, the DNA of, of that rapid technological advancement and the upgrading, but the challenge is scaling that up. Mm-hmm. And and I think again, um, from everything I see and hear, that's 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 not a challenge that's unique to the Royal Air Force. That's that's something that any organisation in this you know in these circumstances is facing. But we're we're a long way down that road. And I think the the shining example of that over the over the course of this decade is going to be the work on the future combat air system Tempest, which again mm-hmm. was announced by the Prime Minister last November when he spoke in Parliament. And we we are from the outset designed from the outset to apply the if you like the modern digital design principles, the the digital spiral upgrade principles, and and already the prototyping iterations that we're getting through are ten a hundred times faster than they were previously, where you would design a model, build a model, put it in a wind tunnel, tweak it a bit, go back to the drawing board, design the next iteration. You know, a cycle of weeks previously is now several times a day. And so we are, you know, we're already taking advantage of that. And that and that Tempest program is the, the collaboration with industry as well. And, and these will be the next generation of jets that succeed the typhoons around 2035, 2040. That's it. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You, well, you've very well read there. <laughs> I'm getting away with it so far, Mike. <laughs> so um, you've touched on that and with, with producing that, that Tempest, the programme, how important is sovereignty to you that the UK should be developing its own equipment rather than buying in from some of our allies? And then I suppose that leads on to the, the point about some people would say that our military force can only ever be diminished when compared to, to the past is that really the wrong thing to say? And looking through it from the wrong lens, we have to operate in the now. Yeah, yes, I, and I'm I'm always conscious of what's gone before us, and you know, and in particular, uh, you know, those you know those really significant moments in the air force's history. For example, you know, the Battle of Britain and the the scale of the organisation at that time, the scale of the organisation, frankly, at its beginning, at the beginning of the of the first world war and and we are we are you know different organization now and a you know with a essentially different purpose but we are not by any means diminished and it would not be grandstanding to say that we are, we remain a reference air force to the world you know air forces around the world recognize that they can't be the united states air force but they do look at us and say you know they're they're there in the royal air force is is an air force that we can aspire to and and that brings uh, an enormous amount of of influence and 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 you know and and a you know and a responsibility for us as well so so i certainly don't see us diminished i see us as as very match fit for for the for the demands of today for taking a leading role in NATO, but then operating beyond NATO with, you know, with, as I say, with allies and coalitions around the world. So diminished is not a word I recognise. In terms of sovereignty, this is really important. And this, and, and ultimately, like, like many things in my business, this ultimately, it's a political decision, it's for our government to decide. But from where I sit and where I would position myself, our ability to have a sovereign aerospace industry, a fully functioning aerospace industry that's capable of doing something 
quite remarkable, like building Tempest, the aircraft that will replace Typhoon in, as you say, 2035, 2040 timeframe. You know, to, to have been a lead partner in building the Typhoons themselves uh, alongside Spain, Italy and Germany. Um, that's, that's something that very, very few nations around the world possess as a capability. And, and I would argue that it's a really important sovereign capability to have because the world is an uncertain place and it's an increasingly uncertain place. And this is something that the UK is absolutely a world leader at. You know, we, you know, we still generate technology which is at the cutting edge, which is ahead of anything that's coming out of anywhere in the world. And that's not just our industry, that's our universities, that's our, our science labs, our science and research organisations. And But it is our aerospace industry as well. And it's a really important employer. It's on Typhoon alone, there's around 18,000 involved in the defence aerospace sector. It's about 18,000 people employed directly and another 28,000 or so in the supply chain. So this is really, really important for the prosperity of the United Kingdom. And our international sales of that equipment is an important part of that. This episode of Leading is supported by Lockton. We'll get back to the conversation shortly, but first here's Lockton's managing partner, Chris Brown, on the challenge of hiring and retaining the best people. My number one priority as leader of the Lockton business in the UK is attracting talent. And I don't see that changing for the foreseeable future. To me, attracting talent is all around articulating the opportunity. And that's not just in terms of the role, but also in terms of the future roles that people can actually aspire to and making it clear that they can see a very clear channel, even as you're going out and looking to employ these people for how these opportunities will develop. And therefore they can see that they can succeed and enjoy the role that you're putting forward. I think to have a diverse, inclusive and rounded organization you have to also instill that within what you're doing from a recruitment and attracting talent perspective. It's absolutely critical to our business. I'd love to talk a little bit about, as I say, 35 years of service. I only usually interview accountants who have put in more than 30 years, Mike, so this is a new new experience for me. I'm interested in the excitement to begin with and how you've moved up through the organisation. So brought up in North Wales, Arif Valley and Anglesey, where I think Prince William was based, was very nearby, and I can only imagine very, very inspiring for a little boy. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think growing up near an airbase and I think um, it's a common story for many people who join you know from a young age all I wanted to do was fly airplanes and I was fortunate that I had the eyesight and the the reflexes and everything else to be able to to fulfill my dream And, and so I joined was sponsored through university and then for the first 10 or so years of my career it was it was one of those jobs where sometimes you have to pinch yourself that you're being paid for it flying a flying a tornado fast jet around on operations but also on exercises and deployments around the world and you know a really exciting and adventurous life for a young person um you know at at around a around 10 15 years ago i probably became more valuable to the air force as a bureaucrat than as a pilot and went into sort of headquarters and senior leadership roles and that, that's and a that sad was, moment for the little boy 
I didn't realize it had happened at the time. Uh, it yeah, was only a yeah. couple of years later I realized that it was happening to me. Don't go into that yet, Mike. I just want to say, so you, you've talked about it a little bit, but I think those tornadoes you were flying from 1992, I think you were, so many places you've been, you were enforcing the no-fly zones in the first Iraq war, I think. And I'm just curious, these tornadoes, there's various different iterations of them. I read that one version could go at Mach 2, um, twice the speed of sound. I'm just curious, what's it like the first time that you're in the air and at the controls of something so powerful? Can you remember? Uh, I, I, I can. And and it's because we train people on a, on a step-by-step basis with increasingly powerful, increasingly higher performance aircraft over the course of three years you're sort of gradually exposed to it and you and you get used to it i know that's a strange thing to say but you do get used to it and you you get used to flying along at 250 feet and looking at the horizon because you're going at seven miles a minute and and you get used to the sort of the the perception of being able to judge distance and height and everything else so that it doesn't feel strange but but i think yeah again for me you know as i say it was one of those jobs where you had to sort of pinch yourself regularly that you were being remunerated for it and and i know i'm you know i know i'm very very fortunate to have been in that position you know in the early stage of my career but it's a you know but it is a as, as i say it is a we are a base-fed organization so everybody has that same career pathway in one way or another yeah and i suppose it's absolutely you, you absolutely need that credibility to, to sit in the office now and, and talk to those um all of those thousands of people because there are huge risks involved it seems like a daft thing yes, to say yeah. being part of the raf yeah but james if i may i'll correct you on that one and i think you know this is one of the things that i'm really keen to get after because you sort of said i had to have the credibility of being a fast jet pilot to be chief of the air staff and 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 that's actually how it has been for the last hundred years. But I, but I think we have lost so much talent along the way because we have glass ceilinged everybody who hadn't been a fast jet pilot. So we were we were selecting our chiefs of the air staff for you know based on people's hand eye coordination as twenty one year olds. So actually that's something that I'm really trying to get after and make sure that we aren't yeah you know whilst yes whilst credibility matters you can get credibility in other ways now as well and and so i so i wouldn't say uh, i wouldn't draw a direct link to the credibility of having been on operations as a tornado pilot as a younger man to having to do the job i'm doing now okay no it's a very good point and then as i interrupted you a minute or so ago you you did start taking those leadership rolls on and correct me if i'm wrong you, you've been based in places like qatar and basra um, and afghanistan where you've led divisions i think you were running the bases in cyprus for a while so yeah. did, did, did leadership sneak up on you or did you see it as a roadmap for you yeah yes i, I mean it's a it is a really good question and 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 i think you know for me while on a squadron on in a in a flying role there is a step uh, step after step of greater leadership responsibility as you lead larger formations you become responsible for authorizing the safe conduct of those formations so as I, as I started i was you know i was only uh, allowed to be responsible for my own body and uh, and the navigator that i was flying with you become responsible for leading two aircraft then four aircraft and then by the time i'd finished my flying career i would be uh, leading formations of 50 or 100 aircraft, whether on operations or or some of the large exercises we do, you know that's that's a different sort of leadership. But but it does very early on give you some of those principles of uh, you know and and you know those sort of self-taught techniques that you that you do you then use for the for the rest of your life. And then and then the leadership of being in a headquarters role or or even in a 
staff appointment where you are a staff officer as part of a, of, you know, of a of a bigger machine. You know, again, all of those, you know, all of those different um, you know, experiences are all part of that tapestry that that ultimately ultimately makes me the leader I am today. But as I say, there, there's no one thing I would point to along the way. There's things I've learned along the way, but but no particular sort of seminal part of my career where I would say that was where I learned about the leadership I needed to be chief of the air staff. And was there any was there anyone who mentored you as you came up and said, don't, don't do it that way, Mike, do it this way? So, um, so in, in answer, I'd probably say every person I ever worked for, I think, was probably mentored me consciously or subconsciously in, in one way or another. And, I, and for me, I would say that you know, whilst I haven't had formal mentoring and, and I've not had people that I have always sort of relied on for, for coaching or for, for advice, what I've found as I've gone through is as I've as I've met people, I've yeah, I've I've kept in touch with people who are interesting to me, who I've felt have got something that I can just have a conversation with and have a you know have a discussion with and and, and bounce ideas off. And you know, some of those are very wise old owls who are not old, I shouldn't say that, you know, very wise owls who have really, you know, given me some really useful advice where I've uh, had you know had some issues that I've been dealing with. But some of that as well has been, you know, much younger people in the service who 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 I've met as you know going around as a as a senior officer had a conversation with and and they've said something that's really interested me or or has kind of sort of grounded me and suddenly in the reality of what that person's experience is so so using that reverse mentoring is something that I've mm. I've found immensely valuable and it's something that I tell to all of my senior team that they, you know go go and find people that you can have a trusting relationship with from down within the organization and and really really use that relationship to make yourself make better decisions coming on to the uh, onto people i think now and i'm curious uh, because you clearly thought a lot about the people i think you had uh, i think deputy commander capability was a role that involved the the, the people agenda i suppose really with the day-to-day of what you do Mike? I'm cl- curious about how you've talked about lethal force. Is is the way that you normalise what the RAF does? I mean, you do defend the skies. You do absolutely watch and monitor and prevent conflict. But in some cases, you know, th- you have to go out to destroy the enemy before the enemy d- destroys us. I don't know how you rationalise that. Uh, y- yes, I mean, and and ultimately, you know, the, those of us that. You know, have the privilege of of wearing this uniform. You know that is not explicit in the contract, but that is the contract that you you need to be prepared to put yourself in harm's way for the defence of the United Kingdom. But also, you you need to be ready to do harm unto others. And I think for me, what what really matters in that is the righteousness of what you're doing. And you know, for example, the the operations that we are continuing in um, in Syria and Iraq at the moment you know those people those violent extremists on the ground in you know in, in in that part of the world left to their own devices they would very very quickly manifest themselves as threats to the the streets of the UK and to our allies just as they were previously these are violent nasty people who would do us harm so for us as a force that being absolutely conscious of the fact that we are making the streets of the UK and our allies safer is a very, you know, very, very important element of that preparation for operational service. Now, in in my, you know, for my operational uh, service, which was 
largely down in patrolling the no-fly zones in south and north Iraq. You know, an element of the activity there, we were being shot at. And when you're being shot at, it's much more instinctive to respond. And and so in, in those circumstances, there's less of a uh, there's less time to think about it, obviously, but there's also it's a clearer cut case of self-defence. But uh, you know, to my mind, you know, going back to your your question, it's 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 an integral part of why we wear the uniform and take the oaths that we do when we join these services. What about as a as a leader when there is loss of life on our side? I saw there was an incident, for example, it came up. I think it was two thousand and eight, and you were in Basra, and there was someone. It just came up in the cuttings. There was someone who was lost, and. Um, Clearly, it's terrible for everyone involved, but you have to stand up and um, pay tribute to that person. Yes, and um, yeah, and that's the, 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 without question. That's the absolute nadir of my job. I mean, that's just the worst possible thing that could happen. But it's you know, it, we recognise too that it's a an ever present risk. We do some very dangerous things, and I, as I say, I've got people. On operations around the world as we are as we are speaking and so being ready for that but being ready to bring the organization through that is absolutely an mm. essential mm. part of my role and thankfully in these times it's a it's a rare occurrence but I'm acutely conscious that a lot of what we do is very very dangerous and mm. and being ready for that and and I think that that for me is a is a real essence of military leadership it's that it's that point of being ready to do something and ready to step up when you might be feeling wretched inside but you know that there are a hundred or a thousand or thirty-two thousand eyes looking at you and and you're the person that they want to hear from and and at those moments you know that that, that is where the leadership really does matter i mean that seems to be like the ultimate test i mean you, you have to and it goes to this this morale point again i don't think you can quite accentuate the positive in these terribly tragic situations uh, but I, I guess there must be a almost a parting of the ways bef- between what you're saying externally and what what you're thinking internally yes and, and that, again that's a real test of leadership and mm-hmm. you know and to my mind it's compartmentalizing what you might be feeling personally and doing what's the right thing for the organization and yeah. doing what, what's the right thing for the people that at that moment you have that great privilege of being in command of and I think that that sense of doing the right thing irrespective of where you feel and what you feel in you know deep inside you again is what really matters and I think that's a real that is a real test of leadership and does that um is there a way of describing your style your way of doing things or you know you're just being yourself in that situation and you know in the day-to-day um, yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, it is. I think it's just, it is absolutely about being yourself. And I, and I think, you know, optimism and being a relentless optimist goes a long way to covering for a, a lot of other shortcomings, but also recognizing and I, you know, and increasingly, as I have done more recent, more senior jobs in recent years, you know, recognizing that I'm firmly in the camp that leadership is not about uh, an individual. You know, it is a manifestation of teams of people, mm. and it's about bringing the best out of the team around you and the the people around you, and taking that approach to e- even in the most testing of circumstances out on you know, operations where where there is a you know a real and quite evident threat to life that sense of bringing the whole team and and everyone in the team being able to play their part i think is a really really important part of Mm. leadership 
I've, I found this. I printed out your, your values and standards personal statement. I've never seen a leader put one of these on their website before, which is a one-pager about really what you believe in. And I suppose it's very easy to be cynical about this sort of thing, except I've not seen it before. And I suppose you put it out there soon after you you took the leadership job. And I suppose everyone around you has to make sure that, that all these words turn into deeds. Yes. Yes. And, and, and that's something that's, you know, that I, that is really important. That really does matter to me. And what's helped shape my, you know, my thinking about that was was relatively recently, and it was in 2019 that the the then Secretary of State asked me to look at a number of instances of inappropriate, allegedly illegal activity, and and certainly you know, pretty as reported, pretty disgraceful behaviour by various parts of the armed forces in quick succession. So I went and did a report on inappropriate behaviours in the armed forces. And I think my kind of generally you know, optimistic disposition and going through the world, you know, seeing the good in people, if I can put it in that way, had, had probably blinded me over the years to the ability of humans in organisations like the armed forces, like the Royal Air Force, the Army or the Navy, actually to do harm to each other, you know, and, and actually you know, by bullying, harassment, discrimination, sexual harassment. And actually doing that report for the Secretary of State kind of got me out of my cocoon and it made me realise that where you've got a culture where there are in the shadier corners of the organisation people doing harm to each other, well, this is about leadership. And, and it's about leadership and it's about the determination of leaders to change the culture that will really... Yeah, is the only way you're going to stop that happening. And please don't get me wrong. You know, there there are 32,000 people in the air force doing brilliant things day in day out. But there, you know, if you go looking into these shadier corners of even an organisation like the Royal Air Force, you will find people who are behaving inappropriately. And and for me, that's that has become a very very important part of my time as chief and you know I, I would even even to go so far as to put it in in legacy terms if you like this is one of the things that I want to be remembered for that we really as an air force not just talked about intolerance of or zero tolerance of inappropriate behaviors but actually got after it as well because fair to point out that report was across um i think all armed services so it was the it was the navy and the army uh, as well yes um and there was as you say there was bullying and sexism and racism and so on it's it's probably too early to tell and, and clearly there's been a pandemic which threw everything out is it getting better no, because I, I think it will take years. And now often when you say it'll take years, that's an excuse for people not to do anything and uh, because uh, it's too hard and it'll take years. And, and so I think changing the culture, because it's changing the culture, it will take years. But, but I know, and I know from the feedback and from talking to my commanders at every level, that we're having conversations now you know, around inappropriate behaviours around the lived experience of our of our minority groups and I include women in that as well and and ethnic minorities around all of those things that we are not doing as well as we should do it's straightforward to change the if you like the the, the processes and the rules and the structures the plumbing if you like but the hearts and minds that's a that's a long term game and mm. and we've only really just begun but I'm absolutely confident that this has been a turning point and I think the you know the protests, and particularly you know the you know the public protests after the uh, the killing, the, you know, the murder of George Floyd. You know that became 
a live issue within the Royal Air Force as well as it did for any organization and across society. And so, you know, these are all things that have helped generate conversations and got people talking about this as an issue. Mm-hmm. And, and and so people like me who who absolutely had a very fortunate fast jet pilot, white male you know, progression through my service, sort of oblivious to all of this going on in the darker, shadier corners. Well, now people like me who are sort of 10 or 20 years behind me are now looking into those shady corners because they're having questions and they're asking people about it. And I think it's, I think the, correct me, Air Force is about 7% minorities at the moment. And I guess you want to if, if that figure's right, no, I... actually, no, it's it's not. It's it's worse than that, I'm afraid, and it's and it's and it is not good enough. So um, it's three percent. And what should uh, it be, Mike? The... What would you like so, it to be? So uh, I want it to be representative of society. So I want it. I want it to be fourteen percent now, and I want it to be twenty percent by uh, by twenty thirty. But we've got an enorm- enormous challenge there, and it's something that I think we've taken our our eye off the ball. And and so I've had a real drive and might my team know that I've had a real drive to to transform the way we approach the recruiting of ethnic minorities and women and over the last couple of years we've sort of bumped along with around about five percent of our recruiting intake again bearing in mind that we're a base fed organization so changing the overall demographic takes years but we've we've gone this year from four or five percent of intake and this year I set the target of 10%, 10%, so this year till the 31st of March, uh, I've set the, the target of 10% for ethnic minorities of our recruits. And I think, actually, I think we'll make it. And I've set the target of 20% for women. But I, but I want to actually double that by uh, by 2030. You know, so I want to be recruiting 40% women by, by 2030. Now, that's going to take a long time to change the diversity within the Royal Air Force, but it's it's getting after it in a way that we, we weren't really alive to and and it's and, and that in itself has changed you know there's a lot of muscle memory in our recruiting system we go to areas of the country where we traditionally recruit very well but that has inevitably meant that we have continued recruiting uh, young white men and we've been denying ourselves a huge pool of talent in the wider UK workforce so so for me it's you know that's been something that I've really really pursued with with energy what well, it, um, it sounds it sounds like my, it as my team well know I was going to come back to the point you made right at the start because I'm conscious of, of your time. The skills that you want to mine in the reservists, and I wonder if it's because you can't find coders who want to be full-time members of the Air Force, or I don't know, maybe the maybe the salary doesn't match, or or you just think there's you can expand that reservist pool and it can it can bolt onto the skills you've got in the in the core force. Yes, actually, it's a bit of all of that, and and it's also the fact that what we would enable people to do whilst they had their reserve uniform on is something that in a private sector or in a commercial setting may not be possible, may be illegal. And so for our cyber operators, for example, there's some really interesting professional things that they could do. Now, it might not be enough to make them want to be full time in in the services because of you know their personal circumstances, because of their, you know, their pay packet in you know as a data analyst for Google or whatever but we absolutely have something to offer as a uh, in in terms of reserve service and and I think that's a model that going forward we need to be much more agile in terms of attracting people like that and establishing a cohort where they're coming in for their reserve service but they're immediately put to task on something which is which they see as has a direct link to protecting and defending the United Kingdom and with something like cyber or or space operations, actually, you know, we can do that. And we're already doing that. 
Mike, I think I've asked everything. What, what else have I missed that uh, I should be asking you about uh, your leadership? Oh, that's a uh, that, that's a diff- that's, that's a question I wasn't uh, I wasn't expecting. I, I think you know, for me, the, the one you the, the one you didn't ask, I think, was you know, it was about legacy. Now, I, I know I'm, I sort of mentioned some of the things. You're about- too new, Mike. I can't talk about your legacy yet. You've only just arrived. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's interesting, because, and that is a that is a moot point, and that's a live issue because chiefs and the all of the chiefs only do three years traditionally, and and I think mm. by private sector standards, you know, a lot of I think a lot of people listening to this podcast would say you know that goodness me that's not enough time in, in a chief executive role and I tend to agree but it's a it's a live issue right now but I think you know, for me the, the legacy that I really do want to leave is awakening the Royal Air Force's innovative instincts and and for the Royal Air Force to be really thinking and talking about and shaping itself for the Air Force of 2040 and beyond. Because I'm acutely aware that the decisions I'm making now, the things we are, the programs we're embarking on now, you know, they won't happen in my service career and they won't happen in a number of people in the headquarters service career. It's the generation who in 10 or 20 or 30 years time follow us. And, I, and I've always thought that that's been a missing part of, of, of our conversations within the Royal Air Force in, in recent years. But we've got this rich history now of 103 years of technological innovation. Throughout our history, we've been at the right in the lead in technical innovation. And and I'd like to capture some of that again in the 21st century, around 10, 21st century technologies. So having that conversation with our people, getting people to feel that not only are they doing their day job protecting the UK today, but that they are also contributing to building the Royal Air Force that their successors will have to pick up and fight with and win with in 30 years time. So that, that for me is the, you know, is the, is the legacy. That was the question you didn't ask. Well, I I just I just thought because you were too new, but I see I see that I can see that you'd rather stick with it if if you could a little longer. I should just say, look, I'll give you your full title, Air Chief Marshal Sir Mike Wigston. Thanks so much for the conversation, James. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. I'm trained to be cynical, but even for me, it's hard to come away from that conversation with Sir Mike Wigston and not be inspired. This episode was supported by Lockton, a global independent insurance broker whose people have the freedom to think and act in the best interests of their clients. For more details, go to lockteninternational.com slash GB slash insight. You can also dive into the leading archive to hear more than 60 CEO stories from the worlds of business, charity, the arts, and more. Or pick up my book, The Nine Types of Leader, and check out leadingpod.com. More new episodes coming soon.